The era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has arrived. The Secretary-General of the United Nations made that proclamation last week with the news that July is on track to be the hottest month on record for the planet. Heat doesn't get the same attention as cyclones or flooding or droughts, but it is climate change's silent killer. It's driving migration of people, flora, fauna, jobs and diseases, says Jeff Goodell, contributing editor at Rolling Stone, who's been writing about climate change for more than a decade. He warns about the risks we face and what we need to do to cool off this deadly trend. His new book is called Heat, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And Jeff Goodell joins me now. Hello. Hi there. Happy to be here. Uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, this, this um, timing is uh, quite convenient for your book, this proclamation by the United Nations. I'd say it was, uh, it was serendipity, but, but I guess another way of thinking about it is it was actually pretty inevitable. Yeah, I mean, you know, scientists have been predicting this kind of warming for a very long time. In some ways, this is exactly um, along the lines of the predictions that they have been making and that sci- and these climate models have been projecting. Um, on the other hand, the the extremity of these events right now all over the world um, is, is surprising and um, is a little surprising for me even you know, I've been working on this book for four years and for it to come out at the same time when mm. um, world record, world temperature records are being broken is a little eerie. Language is important. Was it a mistake to call it global warming? Well, I don't know if it was a mistake. I don't know that there was ever a, you know, it was ever a kind of deliberate choice. But, um, you know, global warming does give people, I think, the wrong um, feeling about what is going on? It, it just sounds like better beach weather. You know, it sounds yeah. like something that might happen far off in the future to people we don't really know. And, you know, there's a lot going on in our world. And and, and there's a lot of other things that are um, more pressing concerns, it would seem. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing now is, um, is evidence that, that, this is a more urgent, this is an emergency. And this is what I'm trying to communicate in my book, that heat is something that is um, an active force that is very um, lethal to people. You know, it can kill you very quickly. And, you know, our bodies are not built for these kinds of extreme temperatures. We understand cyclones because we see the pictures on the news and we see flooding, we understand that. It's part of the problem with the heat that there there are no pictures to represent the, according to your numbers, almost 500,000 people a year who die from extreme heat. Yeah, and those numbers are almost certainly a, um underestimate because, you know, heat is not like a gun. When someone is killed with a gun, it leaves a gunshot wound and mm. it's pretty easy to diagnose what what killed them. Heat um, does not leave any kind of marking. A lot of people who die from um, heat strokes um, die because of cardiac failure, because it puts that strain on their heart. And so they're not counted as heat death. So virtually every public official I talk to around the world agrees that these mortality numbers are, are, are grossly kind of underestimated. But yeah, you know, it's it's inev- it's it's invisible, right? I'm I'm looking at I'm in Austin, Texas talking to you right now. I'm looking out the window 
And the actual temperature is about 43C right now. But I can't tell looking out the window whether it's 35C or 48C. You know, that doesn't look any different. Huh. Um, it visually is, you know, very difficult to communicate the risks of heat because we don't register it in the same way. You tell the story of a couple in California who went for a walk with their dog and their toddler. What happened to them? Well, they were a, a young family. Um, he was a software engineer in Silicon Valley. They decided to leave Silicon Valley and relocate to the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Um, they had a young child, a one-year-old child, and um, they decided to go for a hike one day in the na- not too far from this new house they had bought in the hills. And they had they were relatively experienced outdoor people. They were in good shape. They were in their he was in his early forties. Um, his wife was uh, in her late 30s. They were active, young, healthy people. And they went for a hike and um, they had been warned about heat. It was it was um, expected to get up to about 42 or 43 C that day. And they went out early and they went uh, down to a river canyon and they filled up their water bottles and they played it in the river and it was all fine. But then around noon, they started to climb out and they had to climb a steep canyon with no shade uh, for about, a, it was about three kilometers, four, three and a half kilometers mm. out. And the next day they were, the whole entire family was found dead on the, on the trail. And at first it was not clear at all what had happened. Um, there was concern about suicide or who knew what, but it it became clear pretty quickly that they all simultaneously more or less died of heat stroke on oh the side gosh. of the mountain. What happens in our bodies when we get too hot? Well, you know, our our bodies are, you know, are really good at maintaining a stable temperature. It's our, a stable temperature is really important to the functioning of all of our meta- metabolism and chemical systems in our bodies. But but we really only have, you know, one real mechanism to to deal with heat accumulating in our bodies and it is sweat and what so what happens when we're in a hot environment and our body is trying to cool down is um, our heart starts pumping and it starts pumping blood away from our internal organs towards the surface of our skin where that that blood can be cooled by the evaporation of sweat which is carrying the heat away and within limits that works pretty well as long as you have enough water and you can continue to sweat and as long as it's not too humid um, so that the sweat can evaporate. And as long as those temperature boundaries are um, kind of within manageable um, limits, we can do pretty well. But as soon as those that heat um, buildup starts to um, get beyond what our bodies can handle, things start to go wrong really quickly. Um, our hearts beat faster and faster and faster in a kind of desperate attempt to push more and more blood towards the surface of our skin uh, it pulls it away from our brains and things, which is one reason why we often feel lightheaded or, or even faint as we head towards heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Um, you know, if uh, our if it, the temperatures keep rising, you know, our internal organs begin to feel tremendous stress. Once our internal body temperature gets around 103 or 104. The literal walls of the um, cellular membranes in our in our bodies begin to actually melt, and 
the proteins that control the functions of our of our cells um, unravel. Most people don't get to that point. Most people who um, uh, die of of from heat die from some kind of uh, heart failure or circulatory problem, which is why heat is much more vulnerable. People who are uh, have heart conditions or circulatory problems are much more vulnerable to heat than than others. Um, but it's really a a, a pretty um, horrific way to go, um, and um, there's no compromise. If it gets if your body gets too hot, you die. Has air conditioning made us complacent? Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, air conditioning is seen as a kind of, you know, easy techno fix. You know, I've been doing a lot of interviews for this book and the question always comes up, well, why can't we just turn up the air conditioning and get air conditioning to more people? And, you know, yes, air conditioning is certainly a good thing um, to have uh, in extreme temperatures, but you know, there are billions of people on this planet who do not have access to air conditioning and who will never have access to air conditioning. Uh, I spent a lot of time with people while reporting this book who had air conditioning but couldn't afford to run it because the electrical costs, electricity costs were too high and they just simply couldn't afford it. And moreover, you know, thinking about your own survival in an air conditioned bubble, you know, we forget that, you know, we're not going to air condition, you know, the oceans where billions of creatures live and we depend on for our food. We're not going to air condition, you know, wheat fields and corn fields where the food we eat grow. Um, you know, um, rising temperatures change migration habits, uh, patterns for animals, bringing new diseases along. Air conditioning is not going to fix that. And it's not going to, you know, just to go back to the human thing, it's not going to help uh, the people who are most vulnerable, especially outdoor workers, you know, the people who are delivering our posts and packages, working in the fields, construction jobs, you know, those people who are most vulnerable are are not going to be saved by air conditioning. How I was going to ask you how hot it can get on Earth. Um, and uh, I suppose part of that question is, have you revised your answer to that question uh, over the last month or two? Well... How hot it can get on Earth, you know, there's no physical limits to how hot it can get on Earth. I mean, if in the extreme case, you know, we have the planet next to us, Venus, right? And um, Earth could become Venus. There's no uh, physical limits to that. We're a long, long, long way from that, of course. And But what's I think the question that's most um, relevant in that how hot it can get category is, how hot can it get now with the levels of CO2 that we have mm. in the atmosphere? Right. Let's let's be very clear. The reason that our planet is heating up so quickly, the reason that we're seeing these extreme temperatures is because of the burning of fossil fuels, which is putting CO2 in the atmosphere, which is trapping heat, which is causing uh, this rising, um, the, this, this, these extreme temperatures that we're all experiencing around the world. So as long as we keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere, it's going to get hotter and hotter. One of the things I explored in my book is like there was a there was a um, heat wave that was 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is in C um, uh, in in Antarctica a couple of years ago. And I was I asked many of the top scientists in the world, you know, how hot can it get, say, here in 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 Austin, Texas or in Phoenix, Arizona or in Paris, France or um in sydney australia or any city you want to name it and there's really 
you know, we're not going to see, you know, a jump of um, 20 or 30 C in the heat waves above above average, but we could see far more extreme temperatures than we have now, because it's really important to kind of grasp this idea that because of the CO2 we've put in the atmosphere and the warm that we've had, it's changed the atmospheric dynamics in a, in a very profound way. And, and the climate that we all grew up in, you know, is left behind. And we're never going back to that, no matter what we do with CO2 emissions. And we're moving into this hotter world. And the rules are not really clear about how bad it can get, how quickly. Um, you know, we know the long-term projections, but in the short term, you know, these extreme heat waves are evidence of a kind of new dynamic in, in the Earth's climate system. I'm talking to Jeff Goodell, contributing editor at Rolling Stone, whose new book is called Heat, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Um, what do you make of this... Um it's kind of a new storyline when it comes to fighting climate change. For a few years, we would tell people at an end of an interview like this, so do your bit, reduce your carbon footprint. And a couple of people have pointed out over the last few years that actually that's a bit of a have, that in fact the people who most want us to think that reducing our carbon footprint is the answer are the big oil companies. That's actually been a key message of theirs because it's taken the heat off them and their emissions. So what do you make of that whole thing and, and what will make a difference on an individual level? Well, I think that's absolutely true. You know, the big oil companies and gas companies and coal companies would like us to think that it's all just a question of individual action um, and that if we are kind of better citizens, you know, we can solve this problem on our own. But that is simply not true. Um it's become very clear in the last decade or so that um, these oil companies, gas companies and coal companies have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on misinformation, on uh, spreading false ideas about um, their own efforts to kind of clean up and reduce their emissions. They are not um, honest actors in, in this in this story that what needs to happen is um, larger government action we need um, all kinds of changes and rules and laws to help accelerate the deployment of clean energy permitting all kinds of things like that is a is a big issue updating the transmission grid allowing these new projects to be built um, ending subsidies for fossil fuels that keep these um, uh, power plants going, um, movement away from internal combustion engines much quicker uh, to electric vehicles, you know, replacing fur gas-powered furnaces in people's houses with um, heat pumps. You know, government has a lot of levers that they can do and pull to make this happen more quickly. And the fossil fuel industry, both here and globally, has worked very hard to make sure those levers are not pulled and to, and to um, stretch out this transition, which I will underscore is inevitable. I live in Texas in the fossil fuel capital of America. I talk to oil and gas people all the time. They all know that their era is coming to an end. The question is, how quickly does that happen? And the government's role in this right now is to accelerate that transition as fast as possible. 
when you look at the policies and ideas being offered up by mainstream political parties in elections around the world, are they offering this option to voters to vote for those things? You know, some places are doing better and worse than others, but um, in general, no. I mean, I don't think there's any government in the world that can fairly be said to be reacting to the emergency that we face. And, you know, this suite of policy options that I just talked about, about permitting and, and all these kinds of regulatory actions to accelerate the movement to clean energy is only half of the story. The other half of the story is... You know, we need to build cities in different ways to deal with extreme weather, extreme heat, sea level rise, things like that. Lots of things that can be done in building codes and things to accelerate adaptation in that sense. Um, Greening urban environments, white roofs on buildings to help them stay cooler. Here in the United States, we're experimenting a lot with um, instead of black asphalt streets you know painting them white to help reduce the the heat because especially in cities which are are much hotter than um the surrounding rural areas there's a lot that can be done in 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 cities to green them paris is doing amazing work in um kind of essentially redesigning one of the most iconic and historic cities in the world by uh, eliminating vehicles from the center of the city, uh, replacing parking spaces with green zones and trees and gardens. And um, they're really, uh, through the political, great political leadership of the mayor there, they are really uh, transforming this place. And I would say that they're uh, about um, as close as I can think of as a model for uh, the, the kind of urgency and speed that is needed in in rethinking how cities work. That's very interesting. Yeah, I have to look that one up. Um, it seems, uh, because it must be hard for politicians, every time someone comes up with a climate change solution, somebody else will pick a problem with it. Um, you know, more solar panels. Well, someone will tell you solar panels actually cost uh, uh, create a lot of carbon in their production. More electric cars, people will tell you, oh, well, the, um, the the batteries are all going to go to landfill and that's going to create more problems or um, or we, uh, we'll never be able to have the grid that will support. You know, there's always buts and, and maybe that kind of gets in the way of decisive action. Absolutely does. And, you know, there's no perfect solution. There's no magic silver bullet that we can wave a wand and we'll fix all this. There's none of these options are without um consequences in other in other realms but there are better choices and worse choices and there are smarter solutions and dumber solutions and there is real information real data real facts and then there is greenwashing pr lobbying and things like that i mean the essential problem is you know when will you if when you frame it like that is that this is not a kind of, if you want, a fair fight. The fossil fuel industry has a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And they're of a lot of political power, not just in Australia and New Zealand and the United States, but everywhere in the world. And they use that power. And they use it in all kinds of complicated ways and not so complicated ways. And 
this is basically a political issue now. You know, 10 years ago when I was writing about climate change, I spent a lot of time writing about the coal industry, for example. And, and you know, back then there was legitimate argument that would say, look, we need to get electricity to poorer people. Mm -hmm. Electricity is the engine of development. Coal is the cheapest way to get that electricity to them. And then the argument would be, well, solar is too expensive. There's, or wind is too expensive. We need subsidies, all that kind of thing. It's re reversed now. Solar and wind and renewables are cheaper virtually everywhere on the planet. And so um, the economic argument is very straightforward now towards uh, fast movement to renewable energy. Now it's become kind of a, a culture war, certainly here in the United States, and I think broadly around the world about uh, kind of partisan politics about um, who you believe uh, versus mm. what the what the evidence and data really is. Paris is a sounds like it's a pretty inspiring example. Anything else giving you hope about um, in our efforts to stop burning fossil fuels? Well, I think you know. I mean, people often ask me. You know, I've been writing about climate change and energy for twenty years, and why I'm not, you know, an alcoholic living in my basement, <laughs> despairing about the fate of the of the world. Um, and it's because I, first of all, I meet people every day when I'm covering the story who are doing amazing and inspiring things, from entrepreneurs who are thinking differently about energy and the grid and things like that to urban planners who are thinking differently about cities um, to political activists who are getting involved in, um, you know, the, the fight for changing some of these regulatory issues and, and laws and things. And it, it's a, it's, it's a, a you know, I, I just am constantly running into people who give me hope and inspiration, but more broadly than that, I think that we're at a, real transition point in our culture and in our world. I think that we are um, having to think differently about everything we do, um, about where we get our power, about how we build our cities, about where we get our food. And this is going to happen. This is happening. It's not a choice of it happening or not. It's a question of, does it happen in the kind of Mad Max way that is brings a lot of suffering and loss to a lot of people, or do we think actively and intelligently about it and make smarter choices? I really do think that we have this moment and this opportunity right now to, to rethink our world and to build a better world, a cleaner world um, and a more just world. Jeff, great to talk to you. The new book is called Heat, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Jeff Goodell is the author. Thanks so much for your time and for the energy you're putting into this topic. Thank you for having me.